Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast, the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host each week. I am also the author of Franklin Covey's newest release called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, called directly from podcast guests from our last 180-plus episodes that I found had a transformational insight that our viewers, our listeners, and readers around the world would find fascinating. We'd love to have you pick up a copy of Master Mentors. Stand by for Master Mentors Volume 2 to be releasing with 30 new guests coming out in 2022. Our guest today is the world-renowned psychiatrist, the author of many books that have sold millions of copies around the world, Mark Goulston, who's joining us from Los Angeles to talk about insights into his latest book called Just Listen. Mark, welcome to On Leadership. Well, it's always good to be with you, Scott, and uh, I'm looking forward to what we're going to talk about and see what kind of trouble we can get into and out of uh, within the time we have. Mark, I'm a, a huge fan and follower of yours. I have been honored enough to be a guest on your acclaimed podcast as well. We have many mutual friends and have formed a friendship over the years, including our association through what is known as the MG100, the Marshall Goldsmith 100, of which you are a much longer serving member than I am. I have kind of scraped my way into that group, but I'm delighted to have you here today. Mark, you're well known as one of the nation's, if not world's most preeminent thought leaders around mental health, relationships, communication skills. You're a very well-known psychiatrist out of the Los Angeles area. You have authored numerous books, including one of my favorites that's called Talking to Crazy. And several years ago, I hosted a weekly radio program on iHeartRadio, which you were gracious enough to be a guest. And you talked about how famous the book Talking to Crazy became, including some foreign translations. Tell us that story as we get into your newest release, Just Listen. Well, I always like to teach when I speak. So what I'd like to share with your viewers and listeners is a term called mental real estate. Mental real estate means that when you tell someone a, a word that's familiar, you get into their mind. And then when you tweak it, you own more mental real estate. A friend of mine who was uh, one of the lead Imagineers at Disney told me about mental real estate. He said, Pirates of the Caribbean owns the word pirates in the minds of kids. So Disney owns pirates. So the book you're talking about, Talking to Crazy, has a certain amount of real estate because when I would say to people, I'm writing this book called Talking to Crazy, and they would say, oh, I need that book today. And so that had a certain amount of mental real estate, but I wasn't prepared for what happened when I went to Moscow to speak, I was I was headlining along with the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, has a great new book out called Noise. And I said, why do you have me here with a Nobel Prize winner? And they said, doctor, his book did not go viral because the Russian translation of Talking to Crazy is how to talk to a-holes and it went viral. <laughs> so that's mental real estate. That's what you want to do if you have a book, something that sounds familiar with a little twist on it, and then people, you get into people's minds, and they're curious, and you get more of their mind. You've heard it here first from the acclaimed author, Dr. Mark Goulston, not just psychiatrist, but best-selling author. When you are thinking of the title of your book, make sure you put it into Google Translation to figure out what might be the most inflammatory translation in a large market. Mark, thanks for your vulnerability, and what a fun story. Uh, 
Mark, your, 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 one of your passions, obviously, is mental health. And uh, I've heard you speak around the world on many different podcasts and, and on webinars, virtually and live, about all the lessons you've learned from your decades in psychiatry. I'm guessing one of the crucial competencies of a psychiatrist, of a mental health therapist, is the ability to listen, to uncover, to peel the onion and explore. Like you, I believe that listening is a leadership competency, and it's somewhat counterintuitive because as listeners, we're constantly in communication mode, persuasion, selling, influence mode. Talk about why and how listening is a leadership competency, and perhaps how you grew your skills as a therapist over the decades to become, hopefully, ideally, a model of a great listener. Well, thank you, Scott. Well, something that uh, in the last year I've uh, shared with the world is something called the Michelangelo Mindset. We actually have a website, Michelangelo Mindset, and it's a concept that I fit my entire professional and probably personal life under. Michelangelo uh, was quoted as saying, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set it free. So when I started out as a psychiatrist, one of my specialties was suicide prevention. And one of my early mentors was probably to uh, suicide prevention, what Marshall Goldsmith is to executive coaching. And, and he used to refer me all these people who were suicidal and what I learned in retrospect using this Michelangelo listening is if I could see the hope inside them that they couldn't see and feel. And if we could have a conversation where they could see and feel hope in their mind, the hopelessness they felt that could drive them to take their life went away. And it was interesting. I remember someone I asked, what helped? in working with you. And he looked at me, and, and again, I wouldn't say this about myself, but he said it. He said, I've never met someone as smart as you who felt that I was worth listening to. Mark, and, that, that entree leads me to a story you wrote in your recent book, Just Listen, that I think you call one of the most pivotal or memorable memories of your life. It was, I think, when you were enrolled in medical school and you came home, I think, to your father and had a bit of a, a breakdown or close to a breakdown and, and kind of how your father perhaps even rose to the occasion unexpectedly. Will you kind of recreate that story? Because this will resonate with not only every leader listening and watching today, but every parent as well. Uh, well, you're, you're teeing up a, a real vulnerable moment. So one of my greatest personal accomplishments in life is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I remember I was I had to tell my father that I was dropping out, and my parents are both deceased. And my, my father was kind of the, the, the tough person in his company. He was the person people were intimidated by. He was, he was the person who uh, fired people, hired people. And he was very fair, but he was very strict, and he could be very critical. And I remember I had to tell him that I was going to drop out of medical school. And he was intimidating to my older brothers and myself. And I didn't know what to tell him, but I needed to tell him because we were going to lose money. We were gonna, if I didn't notify the med school, we would have to pay the tuition. And so I remember I saw him. I said, I need to talk to you. And he was seated across from me. And a very he could be very stern and intimidating. And I said to him, um, 
I'm leaving medical school. And then he looked at me and he said, what'd you do, flunk out? Not the most uh, uh, supportive things to say. And I said, no, I'm passing, but uh, uh, I, everything I read, I can't hold on to. And he said, wait a minute, you're passing. So what's the deal? We'll get you, we'll get you a tutor. And I didn't really want to share, you know, that I was afraid that if I went back to medical school that I might do something self-destructive. You know, uh, I wasn't thinking of that clearly, but I had that feeling, I can't go back. And so we engage in this conversation. So I want you to imagine you're talking to a CEO. If you're a listener or a viewer and you want to get their attention, and so, and then I'm going to translate it into how do we use that with, uh, with our CEO. So uh, uh, he keeps talking and there's a point at which he's sort of talking at me and I lower my eyes sort of submissively. I'm thinking, I can't go back. I can't go back. And he's saying, so we're agreed. You're going to go back. We'll figure uh, if you need a tutor and we'll get that done. And we're agreed on that. And Scott, it's almost like David and Goliath. And I looked up at him and I looked into his eyes and I really took a chance, but I knew that down deep he loved me and he wanted the best for me. And I said, you don't seem to understand. I'm afraid. And I just stared at him and the tears came down my cheek and I just stared at him. And then, and then I learned to look into the eyes of anyone when you are vulnerable, but speaking your truth, you can look into anyone's eyes. Uh, and, and it was probably the most powerful moment of my entire life. And I've done a lot of stuff. I've spoken in Russia, I've trained hostage negotiators. And I just kept looking at him like I'm looking at you, except I had tears coming down. And he uh, clenched his fists, looked down and said, uh, do what you need to do. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try and help you as best we can. So what's the takeaway? I think there are times when uh, you have to ask yourself when you're dealing with someone down deep, do they have good intentions? Down deep, do they want what's best for the company? Down deep, do they want what's best for me? Down deep, do they really want to stick by the company's values? Uh, and if you believe that that's going on down deep, you can stand up to someone and you can say, sir or ma'am, uh, and if you need to confront them, say about say about an employee who's really talented but exposing the company to risk because uh, that employee who you may need for their IP and their expertise is toxic. And I think uh, if you can get what I'm saying, you can look at that CEO and say, you don't seem to get it. I know we need that person but he or she's exposing us to such risk, not just of lawsuits, but our reputation. And that's going to go all the way up to you. So I think we need to do something other than just turn the other way. Can you feel the power of that, Scott? Yeah, palpably, palpably. Mark, pivot to a different topic, because that's, uh, that's worth people perhaps rewinding and just repeating. This is a professional podcast focused on all things leadership. And it's not lost on me that one of our co-founders, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, 
was quoted as saying many numerous wise things, including that no success in your professional life can come at the expense of success in your home. Whether your home is as a parent, as a spouse, as a partner, as a single person, or a member of any kind of broader family, many millions of people will watch this and listen to this who are parents. And in many ways, you and I both know there's great similarities in parenting and leadership. Speak directly to everyone here who is a parent or a caregiver, or perhaps is a, a linchpin in someone else's life, and they need to be a better listener because someone is telling them something that they don't understand, or someone in their life has a, a crisis or a mental health issue, and perhaps they're not listening immediately, how do you impart some skills into all of us to today become a better listener? Give us some things. I'm not only going to give you some things, I'm going to do an experiment with you, Scott. Don't get nervous. I think you're going to do well. Um, when I spoke in Moscow a couple of years ago, along with Daniel Kahneman, the title of my talk was Change Everything You Know About Communication. And what I'm now teaching the world, I'm calling it Michelangelo listening. So if we go back to the metaphor of seeing an angel inside a piece of marble and uh, carving until you set it free, what I realized is that inside everyone who is listening to you is someone who is listening for something. So I'm going to try an experiment with you, Scott. Don't worry. Don't be too nervous. If I get us out on a limb, I'll, I'll bring us back. I've trained hostage negotiators, so don't get nervous. <laughs> I feel safe. So so right now you're listening to me. Hopefully we're having an, an uh, informational uh, uh, conversation that's giving some value. And hopefully, you know, your listeners are finding it useful. But inside you listening to me and wanting to cover certain territory, there's a part of you that's listening for something. And let me see if this is what you're listening for. So ride along with me on this, Scott. What you're listening for inside your listening to me is that this podcast is listened to and viewed by more people on leadership than almost any other podcast. So they trust you and they have confidence in you, Scott. And I think what you're listening for is a way to honor their trust and confidence and not waste their time. And I think what you're listening for in guests so that you honor their trust and confidence are guests who are relevant to your audience, so they can say, I, I can relate to this, who are clear, concise, and offer practical, usable by them tips they can use immediately. Relevant to them, clear, concise, and doable by them. And here's the tip if you want to be a better listener. It's called the HUVA exercise, H-U-V-A. And if you use this once a day for a week, it's going to change the way you communicate with everyone. And what HUVA stands for is think of a conversation each day that you want to go well and in which you want the other person to feel that you care about them that you're present with them. So pick out that conversation and have that intention. That intention is very important. And after the conversation, rate yourself according to Hoover. This is how you build the muscle. 
One, how much did they feel heard out by you on a scale of one to 10? Or did you interrupt them? Did you change the uh, subject? Did you not answer the question they were asking? How much did they feel heard out? That's one. Two, how much did they feel understood? That's the you. And they feel understood when you tell them to say more about that. You know, they say something and they use something that has some emotion to it. Never, always, terrible, great. And you say, hmm, hmm means you've taken it in and you say, say more about the terrible. And they feel understood. Uh, v is how much do they feel valued on a scale of one to 10? How much did you pause and after you took in what they said, reflect on it and really be able to share with them that was actually, that was really remarkable. In fact, I'm going to write it down. It was so remarkable. And the final A is how much they feel that you added value to what they said on a scale of one to 10. And you do that by having taken in what they said, valued it, and you may spontaneously say, have you ever thought of applying that to another situation? So I am telling you, if you can apply Hoover and don't beat up in yourself because it doesn't come naturally. But if in your, that conversation, pick one every day, you're going to do everything you can so they feel heard, understood, valued, and then you added value. And rate yourself, don't beat up in yourself, always be improving it. What's going to happen, Scott, is people are going to lean towards you because they want more of that. Because very few people feel heard out, understood, valued, or that anyone added value to what they were saying. So first of all, could you track with what you were listening for when I mentioned that to you? Sure. I was listening. What I'm really listening for is not the underdog, but I'm listening for how do people who feel marginalized or who haven't yet had a chance to move up into leadership, what insights can they get from our guest that could exponentiate their influence or their confidence inside of their organization or career. That's what I'm always listening for. So let me, so let me, I like to give tips because people like uh, ta tactical tips. Um, uh, there's something that I've uh, come up with, but it was inspired by Marshall Goldsmith. And one of the things you can say to someone above you is you, you, uh, uh, you fit this into a conversation. You can say, can I ask you a hypothetical question? And they say, sure. And you say, I'd like you to imagine you, my boss, are at your next performance review. You're in a performance review. And your boss uh, tells you, I'm giving you the biggest raise. I'm going to bat for you to get you the biggest raise possible and the biggest promotion because that was unbelievable. Uh, what would your, what, so you say to your boss, what would your boss need to see in you that you produced that got your boss that promotion? And, and so you brainstorm with them because what will happen is that will help your boss get clear on what he or she needs to get a promotion. And so they're going to be grateful to you that you help them get clear about something that they're usually never think about. And also you can then say, uh, if your boss were to say, this is what I need from you to get you a big promotion or a big raise, uh, what is it that you need to do so that you help them get that? 
So what you're doing is you're looking into the future. So Marshall Goldsmith has this thing called, you know, feed forward, looking, going forward. What do you need? You say this to your boss. What do you need to do or get done that gets you the biggest raise or promotion? And so they get clear. And I'll tell you, when you have these conversations with people, uh, what they'll often do is they'll look up because they want to think about what you just said. And when they come down and look at you, it's not a transactional conversation. Because what you've done is you've focused on your boss's success. They look up, they look down at you, and they get clear, and they say, I think this is what I will need to accomplish. And then that's where you fit yourself in to uh, what you can do to help them get a raise or promotion. Mark, superb advice. Uh, by training, by education, by skill, by practice, you are a psychiatrist. So, of course... Let's talk about sociopaths. <laughs> it's a phrase that a lot of us you know, have in our, in our vocabulary that, of course, we probably use without much consideration. You write about the fact that about every one, I think, of 100 people would be diagnosed as being a sociopath. I think that was actually the phrase you used. And you said the difference is that many of them learn how to thrive inside of organizations by channeling their, their skills, their talents, their their ferocious personalities, their narcissism. Will you talk a bit about what is a sociopath? How do we in our life determine if we are one or if we're married to one or working with one or reporting to one? And how do we deal with that? You, in the book, prescribe how to deal with that, but let's talk about that topic for a few minutes. Well, a sociopath, uh, not all Narcissists, not all, not all narcissists are sociopaths, but all sociopaths are narcissists, meaning they are self-involved. Many of them would pass a lie detector test because down deep, they often feel entitled to whatever they feel entitled to. Uh, it doesn't matter to them whether they've earned it or they've deserved it. And almost everything that they do is... Uh, a way to further themselves. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's at other people's exp expense or not. And so, <clears throat> uh, and they're often very charming. And, uh, but here's how they work. And so I'll share a story that was in, uh, uh, I believe, Talking to Crazy, uh, that is as memorable as hopefully that first story that I shared. On September 6, 1995, uh, I, I learned 80% of what I know about difficult people and sociopaths. Just to bring that back to everybody else's memory, there was a trial that a lot of people may remember. It was called the O.J. Simpson trial. And I was an advisor to the prosecution. And in that trial, there were a couple characters. F. Lee Bailey had accused me of drugging or coaching another character named Detective Mark Furman, uh, who people will also remember. And on September 6, 1995, uh, Detective Mark Furman took the Fifth Amendment because at the end of that trial, he had said that he had never said the N-word, and it came out that he had said it frequently uh, in a series of tapes that a, a, a journalist had made with him. 
And so I was sequestered in the top floor of the criminal courts building in Los Angeles. And I didn't know that Detective Furman had taken the Fifth Amendment. And earlier in the trial, when uh, when F. Lee Bailey was cross-examining Detective Furman in the middle of the trial, I got subpoenaed because uh, I had attended the trial in about 30 random days. And the way what I would do is I would fax them observations that might help them get through to the jury. And they kept me separate because they said a lot of my observations were really off the wall, but some of them were quite useful. And occasionally they would say, watch the trial tomorrow. You might see some of your handiwork. So, in the, so I think F. Lee Bailey and the defense team learned that I was advising the uh, prosecution. And so I was subpoenaed in the middle of the trial to come into court and, and for them to find out what was my relationship with the prosecution. But the subpoena never found me because I was, uh, I was in a building that fell down during the 1994 earthquake. So the subpoena went to this address that was no longer there. So they couldn't find me. And then the trial went on and it went on and they couldn't find me. And so it's near the end of the trial. But this is what I learned about not just sociopaths, but all difficult, I'd say 80% of difficult people. What I realized, because I got very nervous while I was waiting to be uh, interviewed by F. Lee Bailey. So I was sequestered. I didn't know that Detective Furman was taking the Fifth Amendment. And I'm there all alone. And what I realized about all difficult people, including psychopaths or sociopaths, <clears throat> is they'll often charm us. That's how they get into our life. They'll frustrate us. They'll anger us. And then they'll outrage us. And what happens is when we get outraged, we want to get enraged. And most people are uncomfortable getting enraged. And when you're uncomfortable, you're off balance. And that's where they go for the jugular. And so there I am, and I'm getting nervous and almost panicky. But then I figured out F. Lee Bailey, and I figured out what he was going to do. That when he met with me, he was going to charm me. He was going to frustrate me. He was going to anger me. He was going to outrage me. And then... Uh, he was going to hope that I got off balance because I was so triggered. And then he was going to uh, go for the jugular, probably a bad pun in that trial. And so what happens about 7 p.m., F. Lee Bailey comes up to uh, where I'm sequestered, uh, along with an associate of Johnny Cochran named Carl Douglas. And uh, Bill Hodgman was one of the prosecutors. He was one early prosecutor with Marsha Clark, and then he developed a heart ailment. And so he was replaced by another prosecutor named Christopher Darden. So there I am. And this is what I learned about dealing with difficult people and maybe sociopaths. I, uh, I learned how to hold people's eyes. So right now I'm looking into your eyes, Scott, and I can move my head and I'm still looking into your eyes and I can take your eyes wherever I want to. So he sits down and I lock onto his eyes. And here's something else I learned, Scott. It's the power of innuendo because what he said to me is, Dr. Goulston, we don't really know what your role is here, but we know you've been here during times in the trial and we're here because we want to talk to you about Detective Mark Furman. And so he's not asking me a question. He's making statements. And this is what I did, Scott. 
every time he made a statement, which is innuendo, normally you go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And when someone makes a statement and you go, uh-huh, uh-huh, they're actually reeling you in to smash you. So he, every time he made a statement, instead of going, uh-huh, I looked at him with my eyes and his eyes and I blinked. And then he made another statement and I blinked again. And he's doing this for a few minutes and then Bill Hodgman looks at me and he says, Mark, you haven't said anything. I mean, I said nothing. I was just blinking every, every time he wanted me to say, uh-huh. And I looked at Bill Hodgman and I said, he hasn't asked me a question. And then I, and I looked at Bill Hodgman like this and then I looked at F. Lee Bailey and I went back to holding his eyes like I'm holding yours. And he kind of flinched a little bit. And then what I realized, what he was going to do, he was going to charm me, frustrate me, anger me, and then he was going to pick up speed and accuse me of something that I didn't do because I didn't do anything. And when I, here was my mindset. As I was looking into his eyes, I was thinking, I'm not perfect, but I'm not hiding someone who killed two people. What's your story? That's exactly what my mindset was. And so, so what happens is he starts to ratchet up and people who remember the trial will remember that he brought up something called the N-word. And, uh, and once, and Christopher Darden, a black uh, prosecutor said, you know, once you say the N-word, which is an awful word, it triggers everybody. And so once he accused Detective Furman of the N-word, it was gone. Uh, so he does that with me. He charms me, frustrates me, angers me. And then he, and he reaches a point where he says, so you're here to say that you never coached, you never medicated, you never did anything with Detective Mark Furman. And anyone who would say that about you, you know, would be lying. And so that was his uh, knockout punch. And so I paused for seven seconds and everybody in the room was looking at me. It was like the E.F. Hutton commercial. What is Mark going to say? And it was going so well, Scott, that I counted another seven seconds. And then I go <clears throat> uh, to prepare myself. And they all lean in. And I said, Mr. Bailey, my mind wandered the last five minutes. And it sounded really important what you were saying. Could you repeat everything you said? <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Everyone who hears this laughs. And he said, what? I said, yeah, you know, it's late and no offense, but I don't know if I can get my car out of the parking lot because it's locked. And it sounded important what you had to say in the last five minutes. Can, can you repeat all of it? And he looked at Carl Douglas and he said, what did I say? Because see what difficult sociopaths do is when they can push us into our rage and we're not comfortable with it we get off balance so this is what you do so here's my tactics and tips you can find these in my books uh, if you're listening in and i think you're going to like this if you're the head of hr take out a piece of paper draw a line down the middle and on the left side write down all the people who trigger you not just the sociopaths, but all the bullies, all the obnoxious ones, all the people who stonewall you, all the people that whine and complain, write down their name on the left side. And on the right side, 
write down the names of people that really lift you up, people who inspire you, people that you don't thank enough for being in your life. And the reason you don't thank them enough is because you're too busy worried that you're going to have to deal with someone on the left side of the page. So look at that left side of the page and never expect any of those people to not try one of their nasty little tricks. And it could be bullying you, it could be stonewalling you, it could be whining, it could be complaining, but never expect them to be in a conversation and not do that if they want to get out of something or they want to make you do something. Mark, so riveting. You- uh, we could talk for hours. Uh, thank you for the uh, practical details of those stories and the tips. Uh, our time is ending, but I want to talk about one other, I think, really valuable insight you have, both as a coach, an author, a speaker, and as a psychiatrist, and that is the dissonance that exists in all of us in terms of how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us, because obviously there is dissonance in all of our lives. I like this list you have on page 80. You say on the left-hand column, I believe that I am and other people perceive me as. I believe I am shrewd. Others perceive me as sly. I believe I am confident. They perceive me as arrogant. I believe I am humorous. They perceive me as inappropriate, energetic, hyper, Perceive me as a person with strong opinions. That's how I see myself, but others perceive me as opinionated. I perceive myself as passionate when others perceive me as impulsive. I see myself as quiet when others perceive me as passive or indecisive. I perceive myself as sensitive when others perceive me as needy. I think a fundamental leadership skill, a relationship skill, is helping to bridge that dissonance between how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us and increasing our self-awareness, send us off with some activities, measures, tips on how to improve our self-awareness to lessen that dissonance that, that exists between how we perceive ourselves and how others experience us. Well, I, I'm going to answer it with an answer that gets, you a, that gets you a raise or a promotion from the people above you, if it fits them. Because what you're really talking about is a fair number of people, especially leaders and a fair number of CEOs, <laughs> their intention doesn't match their behavior. So when they wake up, they don't say, who can I scare today? Who can I bully today? Who can I uh, intimidate today? They wake up thinking, how can I make the company more successful? But their intention does not match their behavior. So something you can do if you're listening or watching this that you might be able to say to even your CEO, you could say, I heard an interesting podcast and I learned something that might apply to you uh, and I'm sharing it with you because I think you could become more impactful uh, if, if I tell you what this is. I believe you have great intentions. I believe you care deeply about this company. I believe you care deeply about it succeeding. I even down deep believe you care deeply about the people. But you often behave in a way that doesn't uh, feel aligned with that good intention. And one of the th- and this is what you tell them. And one of the things I'm sharing with you is that we all trigger flashbacks in other people. We all remind people of other people. And I think you have great intention, but I think there are times when you could remind other people of someone maybe who bullied them, 
treated them poorly. And when you, and, and I don't think it's just one person. And when you do that, the person you're speaking to has to try to keep a lid on their emotional reaction because you're reminding them of that parent or that brother or that sister. And, and you're doing a disservice to your good intentions and how smart you are. If you share that kind of insight, when I've shared that insight with my coaching clients, they go, their heads almost snap back because their whole life flashes before them. And sometimes my clients will say, I've done this all my life. Cost me a marriage, cost me a company. I said, well, you're aware of it now. Uh, so I'll leave you with that tip because if you're listening in and you've given Scott and me the the gift of your attention, especially for some of my long stories, uh, I w- we want to give you something of value that helps you in your career. Mark, I'm going to ask you one more question because I think your advice is obviously profound. You're passionate about coaching people, not just to act interested, but to be interested. You share an interesting story in the book about a, uh, two different Christmas letters, one letter that comes and it's a certain way and another letter that comes and it's another way and the impact that would have on people. In the next three minutes or so, would you use that as a teaching moment? Use those two contrasting holiday Christmas letters and that the impact it has on someone. And that's a great way, I think, to leave all of our listeners on how they can perhaps behave differently after they finish this podcast. Okay, so uh, what you want to do whenever you write a letter or send something to someone is you want to be different. You don't want to just be like every other letter because when you're like every other letter, you're not different. People remember different. And one of the things that could make you different in a, a Christmas letter is to say, I have a long overdue thank you to give you. And I talk about something called the power thank you. And this is long overdue, uh, but I'm giving it to you now. And a power thank you has three parts. You thank the person for something that they did. You acknowledge the effort it took for them to do it. And the third is what it personally meant to you. I mentioned the dean of students who helped me through medical school. Uh, And you can do this to the next of kin of people. And I sent a thank you letter to his next of kin. And I said, uh, your dad uh, stood up for me against the medical school because he believed in me. He, he was a PhD and he stood up to the heads of hospitals and the dean of the medical school because he believed in me. And the third thing is he saved my life and I didn't realize it but he was Michelangelo and I was his David uh, in my future. And I went on to save lives just like he saved mine. In fact, Mark, in the book, you actually talk about these two different types of Christmas letters. One where a couple sends a letter out to someone, talks about all of their successes and the strengths of their children and how excited they are to swing through town sometime and meet them. And the other letter is about, how are your children doing? I heard, I, I think of your daughter and her musical prowess whenever I hear this song. And, and the second letter is all turned on their interest in the other person, not in how the other person should be interested in them. 
It goes back to something I heard once from Jim Collins, he, of course, the author of Good to Great, the co-author of Built to Last. I heard him speak at the World Business Forum once, and he said this phrase many of us have heard, and that is, spend less time trying to be interesting and spend more time trying to be interested. And I think the more interested you are, naturally, your, your listening skills are going to flourish. I, I appreciate your time today. The book is Just Listen by the renowned psychiatrist and author Mark Goulston. Discover the secret to getting through to absolutely anyone. Mark, thank you for your time, your abundance, your wisdom today. I appreciate you appearing on our podcast, and you've been a great friend and champion to me. You are the essence of what Dr. Covey would call an abundance mentality. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you, Scott. And if people want to reach me, there's a QR code just to That'll take you to my LinkedIn profile. Thank you. Google Mark Golston and you'll find his, uh, his impact uh, globally. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us today. What a pleasure. It's always great to have a psychiatrist on because you learn not just so much about those you work with, but you learn a lot about yourself if you're listening along the way. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, do so on all of your favorite podcast platforms or visit franklincovey.com. You can subscribe to it in a weekly email newsletter that comes out every Tuesday morning that includes not just a blog post from me, but one of our downloadable tools from Franklin Covey's Large Leadership Toolkit. And we will see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.